Okay, friends, welcome to the broadcast. We are here live on this Tuesday evening back in America, this Wednesday afternoon here in Japan. And I'd say I'm glad that you could join us again for Corbett Report Radio. Of course, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And, of course, I am broadcasting to you live from here in Japan, where, of course, foremost on many people's minds are the ongoing nuclear disaster at Fukushima Daiichi in the northeast part of the main island here in Japan. And I'm lucky enough to be several hundred kilometers away, but still too close for comfort in many different respects. But at any rate, some alarming news continues to pour forth from Fukushima Daiichi on a daily basis. So I hope you are following some of the excellent websites that are doing a great job in keeping up with the headlines. For example, enenews.com, where one of the uh, most worrying headlines to come out uh, today, CBS Evening News, Radioactive waste from decontamination buried in elementary school playground. Or xskf.blogspot.com, another great source of information. And they have this worrying headline, Another decon worker dies in Hironomachi, Fukushima, in a government decon project. And uh, there's informable.com for people out there who want documents and and some of the, um, uh, well, really uh, detailed things that, that really break down quite a bit of the detail behind what's going on behind the scenes and some of the science behind it. And tonight we're going to be talking to Dennis Riches, who is running a blog called nf2045.blogspot.com. That's nuclear free by 2045. And uh, we, he, he has an ex- excellent source of information here, tons of articles, and uh, I've posted some of them to fukushimaupdate.com. And, of course, I will put the link into the, in the uh, notes for tonight's episode on corporatereport.com slash radio, so you can go and check out this website for yourself. But without further ado, let's bring him straight on. Dennis, it's great to have you here today. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Oh, thank you for having me, and thank you for the uh, nice words about the blog. Well, it is an excellent source of information. You have some really interesting articles here, and uh, we'll, I hope we can go through a few of them tonight. But, uh, but one of them in particular I wanted to uh, concentrate on, well, it goes by the uh, intriguing title, I Bet Alex Trebek Never Asked This Question on Jeopardy. And we'll get more into that uh, perhaps after the break here, but just in the first couple of minutes, perhaps we can hear a little bit about yourself, your background, and what made you want to start this uh, this blog. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, I've been living in Japan for uh, 15 years, and uh, I've been raising children here, and I'm, I've got a mortgage, and I've got a good job, so I'm kind of sunk in and uh, settled here. And... Um, when the earthquake hit last year, I was actually on a sabbatical in Toronto. Uh, so I, I felt very fortunate that uh, my children and I were, and my family were um, outside the country when everything happened. And uh, we stayed an extra two weeks into mid-April just uh, to wait until things settled down. And that turned out to be a good decision because there was a lot of nasty stuff in the air in those days. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, weirdly enough, I was also out of the country when it happened. I was in Canada for, for just a, a week or two when it actually first started, but we did come back at the end of March and uh, when it was still ongoing. So it was um, a pretty, uh, pretty hair-raising time in a lot of ways, but I'm glad I did miss at least the, uh, the early stages of it. So, um, so what part of the island do you live on? I live in uh, Narita, right near the airport, and I work in Tokyo. So I'm a little bit closer than you are to the danger zone, but um, I think uh, we're relatively safe uh, there, but even though there is some you know, light amount of uh, fallout on the ground there, even in uh, Chiba, where I live. Absolutely, yeah. No, there were, I, I have seen some of the maps of some of the uh, the fallout that occurred in the first few days, and uh, and that area did get uh, 
blanketed in, in different parts and different spots, and it really depended sort of where you were and you know where the wind was blowing that particular day. So pretty hair-raising stuff. But at any rate, we'll be back after this break to talk more with Dennis Richards, Riches of nf2045.blogspot.com about Fukushima and the ongoing nuclear crisis. My sweetest friend Everyone I know goes away in Okay, we're back live here on Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're talking to our special guest, Dennis Riches, of Nuclear Free by 2045, a blog that can be found at nf2045.blogspot.com. And straight off the bat tonight, I wanted to get into an interesting article that's posted up under the headline, I Bet Alex Trebek Never Asked This Question on Jeopardy, and the subhead, What Nuclear Accident on American Soil is Said to Have Released 459 Times as Much Radiation as the Three Mile Island accident. And I'll just read the opening paragraph to this uh, this write-up. It says, It is stunning to discover occasionally one of the many events in this world that are known and should be widely known, but which remain off the record of the wider public consciousness of historical events. If you ask any informed citizen to name three nuclear accidents in history, they will easily tell you the big three. Three Mile Island, 1979, Chernobyl, 1986, and Fukushima, 2011 with the last two being major catastrophes and the first being mostly a catastrophe averted. Actually, Three Mile Island should be bumped down the list to a lower ranking, but for many reasons, the much worse accident in 1959 at the Santa Susana Field Laboratory in Simi Valley near Los Angeles has fallen down the memory hole. And it certainly has, because until I saw this article, which again is available at nf2045.blogspot.com, I was completely unaware of this Santa Susana accident and the history behind it. So I really do suggest that people take a look at this. It's a, uh, a write-up about the accident and its significance, followed by a, a repost of a, uh, an article that appeared in Miller McLuhan back in 2009 on the 50th anniversary of this nuclear accident, one that most people, I venture to say, have probably never even heard about like myself. So, Dennis, let's talk a little bit about what happened at Santa Susana Field Laboratory and why it, has, uh, it, it went so much under the radar. Yeah, I think one reason it went under the radar is that um, I think it was never investigated by the IAEA, which was only two years old at the time. And uh, plus, I think just the the media wasn't as sophisticated as it is now. And um, it, you know, before the Vietnam War, it was just you know, there just wasn't that uh, attitude of skepticism and um, honest reporting uh, as much as there is now. I think so, and I think, as you mentioned in your write-up here, that probably also another contributing factor was the general public's uh, relative ignorance of, of nuclear power itself and the uh, the dangers yeah. of radiation at that time. Yeah, I think that's true. And I guess I think, you know, the, the people who were running the show in those days just uh, had a much easier time um, not reporting this stuff. Which they probably did in a number of different fields, but luckily, as you as you point out in this uh, in this write up, it, by by 1979 there were a number of environmental groups and other groups that were focusing more on the nuclear issue, and uh, Three Mile Island became a, a, a really well covered event. I mean, certainly people knew about it as it was happening and and the possible effects that were going on. 
So uh, certainly it has entered into the public consciousness. Well, let's talk a little bit about this uh, uh, Santa Susana um, uh, accident and, and really what, what occurred there in uh, July of 1959. Okay, well, uh, yeah, they started off that article in Miller McCune with a quote from the, uh, the press release that went out uh, shortly after the accident. And um, it just described um, uh, an incident referring to a parted fuel element. Uh, no release of uh, radioactive particles and personnel not exposed. So that's what went out to the public uh, at that time. And it wasn't until uh, after Three Mile Island in 1979 that a UCLA student uh, stumbled upon the, these old reports and realized, you know, based on what he knew about Three Mile Island, that this must have been uh, something much bigger. And uh, that's what got it back into the public consciousness. So it was 20 years before anyone even really dug this history up. Um, what right. kind of reactor was Santa Susana? Uh, it was a, um, a sodium experimental reactor, which uh, was, means it was not water-cooled, it was not pressure-cooled, but the sodium had to be kept isolated from air and water uh, because if it contacted water, it would explode. And, um, so it was tricky in that way. And um, there was no containment dome over the reactor. So when this started to melt down, they had to release, and it wasn't released into a dome, it was just released into the atmosphere. And unfortunately, the, one of the most uh, worrying parts of this is that, uh, that they really don't know how much radiation was released. Yeah, I think that's the reason probably why it hasn't really gone into the official history of nuclear accidents, and it's not very well known because uh, the Department of Energy never really made an official statement about how much they thought leaked out. They just left it undetermined. But um, there have been other studies, um, legislators back um, in the uh, yeah, 1979, after that, uh, legislators established a panel called the Santa Susana Field Lab Advisory Panel, and that was made up of uh, academics and activists, people who were a little more skeptical of the official line. And their conclusions said that um, there were higher rates of cancer among the workers, uh, especially of blood and bladder. And uh, they estimated the releases uh, by surmising the, from radionuclides found in the coolant. And they estimated hundreds of times higher than Three Mile Island. But again... No official, you know, really solid uh, way to say how much exactly escaped. Yes, very worrying indeed. And uh, and just mm -hmm. to to back up the idea that uh, that a number of the workers were affected by this that, um, at the time of the writing of this Art Miller McCune article, uh, there was only one surviving worker who had who had actually witnessed the meltdown. His name was John Pace, and they include a quotation from mm -hmm. him saying, "The radiation monitors went off scale; they were too hot to measure." A few hours after it happened, I found out that the reactor had run away from them and they had to release the gases. After leaking the gases, they discovered that the winds were headed toward the San Fernando Valley. All of our families lived there and all that radiation went over their homes. Uh, extremely worrying uh, little piece of that history. So so certainly I, I think uh, it, it is quite worrying to think about the potential health effects that we'll never really be able to calculate um, from this. And and that's really, I think, the, the, the point of this is that uh, that with not only this accident, but many other nuclear accidents, it's impossible to attribute exactly how many deaths can be can be said to definitively have come from the accident. 
which is uh, it's basically the nuclear industry's way of getting off the hook for this. Yeah. Yeah, if you just think of uh, you know where this happened, Los Angeles, the, you know, the smog bowl of the United States. Um, so there's cancer from that. There's cancer from, from uh, you know, drugs people take and drinking and, you know, unhealthy habits. And, and then this site itself, um, uh, the Santa Susana Field Lab, was also a testing site for rocket fuel. And, you know, they actually did practice launches there burning all kinds of fuel. So it was actually more famously known as a, as a chemical uh, toxic waste site. And um, many people who've known about that didn't even know about the radiation on the site. So this all gets mixed in together, and you know how much can be attributed to radiation is, is never known. Absolutely. Well, let's uh, let's put this into perspective. So, for example, in this write-up here, it says that a study completed in recent years concluded there were 300 to 1,800 extra cancer deaths off-site as a result of the accident while workers on the site suffered very high rates of cancer, as you mentioned. Um, and, and compare that to what happened at Three Mile Island. I mean, what's, it, I mean, it's so, so much more of an accident that it's, it's really remarkable that, that Three Mile Island is the sort of U.S. nuclear accident, uh, exemplar that, that everyone will, will take a look at because it's so much, uh, so much more well covered. That's right. But there are studies too that attribute extra cancer deaths to Three Mile Island and, and those aren't, uh, uh, talked about very much either. Certainly not. Well, um, okay. So this was this was an example of, uh, of of a meltdown that occurred in some some gases that that, that did get out, and there certainly radioactive material uh, did did get out. What what happened at Three Mile Island for people who don't really remember that incident? Uh, yeah, that's one incident I haven't really uh, looked into too much lately, actually. Um, but I know there was there was a protective dome there that that stopped it from being much much worse than it really was, and they were able to contain most of it. Unlike Chernobyl, unlike Chernobyl, and unlike the, this one that we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, again, just uh, the history of these accidents uh, they they all seem to be fairly similar, which seems to be trying to cover up as much information about what went on as possible, and then uh, and then basically just denying that. Uh, any particular study of basing whatever numbers of how many people might have died as a result, just saying that that's uh, that's not credible. So it seems to be that there's there's kind of a playbook that uh, the nuclear industry follows in the wakes of these types of accidents. That's right. Exactly. Well, we'll we'll start to get into that playbook maybe a little bit more and 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 take a look at some of the other articles that you've written. Um, right now, uh, on the front page, there was one that uh, article that you had up that I thought was extremely interesting called Why Most Research Findings Are False. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Oh, yes, I should uh, open up that uh, page myself and refresh my memory. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that's uh, written by a medical researcher who talked about um, why most of the, uh, the medical research that we read about is, is highly suspicious in one way or another. Um, you know, the classic example is, uh, you know, the, the studies that say, you know, coffee's good for you. And then a year later, uh, there's another paper that comes out that says coffee's going to give you bowel cancer or, or whatever. And, uh, he just, uh, he just made a scientific study of all these studies, uh, what they call a meta study, I guess, and, and found that they're all flawed in some way. Um, basically because of, uh, biases that come into play. 
Sadly, it's not yeah. not particularly surprising, but unfortunately, it comes as a surprise to many people who, unfortunately, the way the media tends to report scientific studies and medical studies, there's no indication of of, um, of possible error or any any type of confirmation bias or any of the other things that often sneak into these types of studies. So, unfortunately, I think it's a it's an indictment of the media that tends to report these types of studies un, unquizzically. But uh, yeah. let's leave it there for now. We'll come back after this break. But if you want to get in on tonight's conversation and talk about nuclear power and or Fukushima and or ask some questions of two people here in Japan, you can get in at 1-800-313-9443 and we'll get you up and on the air. And we'll take a short break, but we'll be right back after these messages. Friends, we're back here on Corbett Report Radio. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, broadcasting to you, as always, from the land of the rising sun, Japan, where, of course, we always have our eye on the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster. And you can also, you can, of course, follow at, uh, what's going on there at FukushimaUpdate.com, but also Nuclear Free by 2045 at nf2045.blogspot.com, a valuable source of uh, very interesting uh, articles about the Fukushima crisis, but also about nuclear energy uh, from a wider perspective and taking a look at some of the other things like the uh, the long-forgotten accident, accident at the Santa Susana Field Laboratory uh, near Los Angeles, which we have just discussed. So, Dennis, uh, perhaps we should address for some of the listeners, I know I used to get lots of emails from people asking me how I could still possibly be living in Japan in the wake of this disaster, many people thinking that Japan has turned into a nuclear wasteland and is completely uninhabitable. Um, perhaps you can give us your own uh, take on your experience of, uh, of what you have experienced and haven't experienced here and why you've decided to remain in Japan. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I do have my doubts some days. Uh, a couple of times I've just been ready to pack it in, thought it might be best to do that. But um, when I look at the maps of where the fallout went and I compare those to the Chernobyl fallout maps, I see the, uh, the zone where I live in Chiba is pretty much similar to the fallout that landed all over France and Germany and northern Italy back in 1986. And I look back on history and say, well, not everybody there picked up and, and left from Western Europe. Um, and, you know, there may have been you know, small increases in, in cancer yeah, in the population there, never proven, of course, uh, what caused that small increase. So you have to think about that when you think about... Uh, you know, picking up and leaving everything. I'm 52 years old now, and my children are right in the middle of their education and school. So you have to weigh the decision against that. I think we come from a similar perspective. I'm uh, I'm not 52. I'm 32, but I have a, a wife here in Japan, and uh, and obviously extended family through that uh, that connection. And uh, it is somewhere I've made my home for the last eight years now. So it's not something that I'm just going to pack up and leave at a moment's notice especially when there's 120 million other people here who are sharing a similar fate. So um, so I think this is something that, that uh, I'm here to deal with. But, of course, it is a question of dealing with it and, and finding out how to uh, to avoid some of the dangers. What what concerns do you have or don't you have in the wake of this crisis? Um, I think number one is the food supply. Uh, we make every attempt possible to, to get food that uh, is coming from uh, southern Japan, uh, if we can trust the labels on it or to get imported food. Uh, we stopped buying seafood 
Uh, um, you know, if we know that it's come from waters off Japan, we don't eat it. Um, but I think that's the main concern. And then we just hope there's not another earthquake or a collapse of uh, the Unit 4 uh, spent fuel pool. Um, we'd have to leave the country pretty soon if, if that happens. Absolutely, and uh, and not to worry you, but uh, one of the breaking headlines on enenews.com happening now, M4.2 quake in Fukushima, followed by M3.5, both in last 45 minutes. So it's yeah. always a constant concern of the uh, the idea that there could be another earthquake, and uh, imagine if there was one of similar magnitude yeah. as the first one. I mean, that's uh, almost unthinkable, and uh, certainly it would be time to probably pack it in and leave if, if that did happen, but uh, we'll have to wait for that eventuality. But I'm exactly with you. It's the food supply that I'm extremely concerned about, and I'm lucky enough to be living here on the western side of Honshu, so I'm just trying to source vegetables locally and not buying my usual uh, Hokkaido potatoes and things like that. Uh-huh. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's very, very much a concern uh, uh, because it, it, raise, it brings up the, the question that you never usually think about under normal circumstances. Where is my food coming from and how do I determine that? Which is a lot harder than, uh, than you might think until you actually have to do it. That's right, um, especially when you, you can't really trust the, the way the food is labeled. Um, there was an interesting story uh, way back in April, um, just... Uh, when food from Japan was starting to be exported, you know, after this, and I think it was tea leaves or vegetables or something, and they showed up in Singapore with a label from a prefecture far away in western Japan, but they tested positive in Singapore for radiation. Um, so obviously, they had been repackaged with a false label and shipped out of the country, um, thinking that the, the Singaporeans would be too stupid to check them themselves. Absolutely. You'll ask me if I'm surprised about that. Yeah. So, so what what do you think is the the long term perspective for seafood here in Japan? I mean, I'm certainly not touching it if at all possible, and I haven't really touched very much at all. But um, what what do you think in terms of? Uh, I mean, do you think there there that you can source like Chilean salmon or and trust that that's uh, that's really what they say it is, or are you just avoiding it altogether? Uh, we've trusted the labels a few times, uh, uh, depending on the store where we're doing our shopping. And bought uh, yeah Chilean salmon or Alaskan salmon things like that, but yeah for for local seafood I don't think it's going to be safe for a long long time. Yeah I know I I, I go through go by the um, the cheap uh, sushi shops here and and see they're generally packed with people happily cramming all this seafood into their mouth and I I shudder because because uh, honestly once the, one of the most disturbing things that I I've seen is the the uh, the. Uh, the fallout map for the Pacific Ocean, really, the, uh, the spread of uh, radiation there. And for people who haven't seen that, um, I have a post on FukushimaUpdate.com called Aqua Chernobyl, Chernobyl, which goes through the uh, the spread of the contamination in the Pacific over the past uh, several months. It's uh, extremely worrying when you start to look at that, and I think it would turn you off uh, seafood here if you uh, weren't already. So... On that note, uh, we'll leave it there. We'll come back in just a few minutes. And once again, the phone lines are open, 1-800-313-9443. You just do as you're told. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
Welcome back to the broadcast, friends. You are tuned into Corbett Report Radio, and I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight, we're talking to Dennis Riches, who is the proprietor of the Nuclear Free by 2045 blog at nf2045.blogspot.com. Again, the link will be uh, there in the notes for tonight's episode at CorbettReport.com slash radio. And the phone lines are open for your calls, 1-800-313-9443. I want to get into a little bit of how uh, Dennis came to the, uh, the start the blog and, and what the, uh, the, his ideas are for nuclear energy in the future and what can or should or might replace it. But before we do that, we do have one caller waiting on the line. We have Vicki in Idaho. So, Vicki, thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, what's on your mind? Um, hi, yeah. I, I was wondering if your guest knew anything about the uh, accident that occurred in Idaho in 1959. Uh, yes, I read about that in a, in a book. Um, what was the name of the book? I can't remember. Was that the one where the, the two workers were suspected of having some uh, jealousy over a woman and the, one of them killed the other and the reactor went into meltdown? No. Oh. No. Okay. That must have been another one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no. They, yeah, no. They were, um, they were uh, technicians and they were, I guess, playing a very dangerous game of uh, something called Tickle the Tiger or something. They were um, holding the isotopes, and they got them too close together, I guess. But anyway, what, what was your source of information for the Simi Valley accident? Because I never heard of that one. Uh, yeah, that was um, Villa McCune. It's an online magazine. Um, maybe if you just uh, search for that, it would come up. Uh, also, the History Channel did uh, a report on it, uh, and, I th- and I think they're on YouTube. If you just look up uh, History Channel, Simi Valley, I think those might be the keywords you could find it with. Uh, it's also been covered over the years uh, in the local media in Los Angeles. Um, News Center 4 was one channel cited in the article. They did a week-long uh, report on it. So um, it's not like it's been covered up or anything. It, it's, it's well known in the Los Angeles area. Uh, it's just never been a real national story that everybody knows. If you're looking for the uh, the Miller McCune article itself, it's under the headline "50 Years After America's Worst Nuclear Meltdown," and that's uh, that's actually in that uh, post on nf2045.blogspot.com. So again, you can go there for it, and it will be in the show notes for tonight's episode. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you for the call. And uh, yeah, interesting. I I had never heard of either of those uh, accidents that that you guys were mentioning, and especially the one about the uh, the quarrel that happened. I I haven't heard anything about that before. That's uh, a disturbing and interesting story, or it sounds like one. Uh, Yeah, the 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 love triangle background there is uh, was something that's rumored but never confirmed. But uh, the two worker, one worker got impaled by one of the fuel rods. it exploded into his guts, and uh, and they were buried in lead caskets after that. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. Well, um, unfortunately, I suppose not so surprising for, for people who have been following some of these uh, these ridiculous stories that, that keep coming out of nuclear power plants. And, and there did seem to be a huge spike in the number of stories about nuclear disasters and accidents in the wake of Fukushima. Uh-huh. But I, my sense is that that is probably just because people were more keeping a closer eye on things and more attuned to that type of information. But what's your take on on that? Um, yeah, I think so. It's, it's back. Uh, it's 
prominent in the media again in public consciousness I think uh, in the way it hasn't been since uh, the days of uh, the China syndrome and, and Silkwood those were the big movies that everybody watched back in the late 70s right and wasn't the China 70s. syndrome just before Three Mile Island actually occurred that's right yeah the public was already scared out of their wits by the movie and then and then the incident happened right after the release of the film. Funny synchronicity, but not ha ha funny. Um, no. Well, interesting. But uh, well, your website is called Nuclear Free by 2045. So I wanted to get a little bit into why why this title and and nuclear free. In what sense do you think that we will be able to completely er- eliminate nuclear power? And if so, how how can we go about doing that? Yeah, I think it was kind of a naive and uh, quixotic idea I had at the time I started the website. I was still just starting to research some of these things. And, uh, and I just thought, well, you know, I thought about that, this beginning of the nuclear age in 1945, and I thought about you know, the, the condition of the world now. We're just starting to get rid of nuclear weapons and, and scale back the stockpiles. Uh, how long would it take to, um, to shut down all the nuclear reactors and and just put an end to the nuclear age, and I just thought that number of 100 uh, could be a meaningful uh, anniversary that people would aim for. Um, so I wrote on the website there in the, uh, the first post, I said, please steal this idea. If, uh, if Greenpeace wants to take the idea and make a campaign out of it, uh, I'd be happy to let them have it. <laughs> Well, it is a good idea because certainly that that hundred year anniversary would definitely have a, a, a sort of hold on the on the public psyche, I think. But um, mm-hmm. but it it does raise the question of how we go about transitioning off of nuclear and now that it's been woven into the fabric of of so many countries. And um, and as we know, the nuclear industry, as it has grown up, has grown up around the nuclear weapons uh, uh, industry. I guess we can call it mm-hmm. that. Um, armament industry, and that's why we have these extremely unsafe uh, uranium reactors that have the plutonium byproducts that can then be used in the wep- weapons manufacturing. So so uh, my my concern is really how, how if we could possibly transition into something like thorium, which is a much safer uh, type of reactor, but of course yes. it would be coming up against the military-industrial complex in that case. But what do you think in terms of other energy sources that might be fruitful for us to be exploring? Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure uh, what to say, but I, I, I'm kind of open to the idea of these safer technologies like thorium coming along. And um, uh, anybody who's interested in these issues should uh, listen to what Bill Gates is saying about the, the traveling wave reactor. He's investing heavily in this new and untried technology where they're, they're going to use up uh, nuclear waste and the fuel core will be buried in the ground and... The um, I guess the bombardment of neutrons is going to travel down the uh, the core there and use up the fuel. Um, I don't have the technical expertise to really talk much about it, but uh, these new technologies are being promoted as being very safe and uh, so so radically different from these these old relics that are blowing up now in Fukushima. That um, you know. Proponents of the the next wave of nuclear technology are saying, "Well, it's going to be nothing like the past. Trust us, it's safe." Well, yes. How many times can we do that? But but yeah. certainly there has to be yeah. something better than this now. You know, technology that's now fifty, sixty years old. In in some cases, it's just it's ridiculous to think that we haven't been able to progress beyond what we have with some of these aging reactors that are starting to break down in so many ways, and and so many troubling reports coming out in the wake of Fukushima 
in the U.S., for example, of uh, regulatory agencies being in bed with the uh, industry and as a result all sorts of um, leeway being given to various reactors that were failing all sorts of stress tests and things, and uh, and basically they were rewriting the rules uh, every time there was a problem at a plant to allow for those uh, that problem. But uh, but let's let's play devil's advocate here for for a little bit because of course there's the I suppose the anti anti nuclear lobby that ar- consistently argues that nuclear power is is so safe and and yes there are accidents and some, sometimes things happen but on the whole it's much safer than many other uh, types of energy. And one example of that comes from, for example, from heartland.org, and they had an article, Analysis, Nuclear Power is Safest Energy Source Study Show, and this was published back in 2005. And it says, in 1998, a Swiss study looked at 13,914 severe accidents, including 4,290 in the energy industry between 1969 and 1996. This included both Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. Even including those two highly publicized incidents, the study determined that among conventional energy sources, coal, oil, natural gas, and nuclear, nuclear power was by far the safest. The second safest power source, natural gas, has a fatality rate 10 times higher than nuclear power. In the Swiss report, Comprehensive Assessment of Energy Systems Severe Accidents, published by the Paul Scherer Institute in 2003, concluded that in the production of a full year of a trillion watts of energy, which might require many years to produce, as all of Canada takes 15 years to generate a terawatt year, Fatalities expected from the various uh, potential energy sources are, and this is nuclear, 8 fatalities, natural gas, 85 fatalities, coal, 342 fatalities, oil, 418 fatalities. So we often see things like this trotted out in the wake, not only in the wake of nuclear accidents, but even in times of relative stability in the nuclear industry to try to convince us that really nuclear is so safe. What, what's your take on studies like these and arguments like these, which I'm sure you've heard from, from people over the years? Yeah, well, I think there's some interesting moral arguments there. If you're going to talk only about fatalities, um, yeah, you're ignoring uh, damage to the food supply from nuclear, um, the risk, um, the terror of just having to wonder of uh, how much radiation is in this this food that I'm eating right now, and um, so the the risk of widespread damage and terror is really great. And I think when you compare with those other energy industries and talk about the people who die or get hurt in accidents, uh, those are usually people who've chosen to work in that field and they've taken on that risk. Um, it's not the the wider community of citizens or children that are being harmed by the accidents. So I think there are a lot of distinctions you can make like that. Uh, certainly are. And I haven't seen this particular study that's being cited here, so I'd have to, to see more about the methodology. But it does raise the question of how they determine fatalities and, and whether that's only on-site sort of uh, fatalities in the immediate wake of an accident or if it includes long-term cancer deaths. And if so, how do they attribute that to the, the original accident and things like that? So so to my mind, that's always the trick that's uh, that's being played in, in things like this where people say, oh, of course nuclear is so safe. It only killed... You know, however many people they want to say Chernobyl killed three or fifty-three or whatever the official number yeah. is, when when in reality, of course, it's much much higher. But uh, but we can never ever definitively say that. So they get to get away with saying that it's such a safe uh, energy supply. That's right. Well, let's get into Chernobyl a little bit. I understand you're reading an interesting book on the subject right now. Uh, yeah, this has just come out. Um I think the publication date was 2011. It must be quite recent. It was written in uh, 2006 in Russian, and it's just been translated into English. Uh, it's called uh, Chernobyl, Crime Without Punishment by Alla A. Yaroshinskaya. 
and she was a, a Russian journalist uh, in the, the 1980s, and she went on to a career in politics after that. And she's written a really in-depth report on all the struggles of the, the Chernobyl victims over the years to, to get compensation and justice. And it's, it's a really good um, look at just how hard it was to, uh, to fight against the bureaucracy and um, the politicians who just uh, did not want to admit how bad this disaster was. Indeed. Well, I've, I've watched some, uh, some very interesting documentaries about what was happening at the time and what, uh, the discrepancy between what the scientists were finding and, and, and worrying about and what the public was being told. And, uh, that discrepancy, of course, was extremely vast. But, uh, it does, it does make you wonder about the way that, uh, that information in, in accidents like this are communicated to the public. So, so what's your take on the, the similarities or differences between the, that, that aspect of the Chernobyl accident and the Fukushima accident? Uh, it's all, it all seems to be very similar. Um, the, it happened, seemed to go in the same way. They evacuated much faster in, the, in Chernobyl. Um, so a lot of people have made a positive comparison saying, you know, the, the communist dictatorship did a better job than the, the, the Japanese democracy did. Um, but that's not quite right. If you really look into it, you really, you realize the, uh, the Chernobyl uh, reaction was pretty scandalous too. Well, exceptionally scandalous, um, considering there was no containment on the facility, so it was just completely straight out into the into the atmosphere. And it, it, it interestingly enough, of course, it was a, a nuclear uh, plant in Sweden, I believe, that discovered the the leak in the first place. That's right. But uh, the real trouble started uh, after the evacuations. Um, people uh, were rushed out, and there were quick decisions made to uh, to rebuild. Uh, 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 new villages and new new housing and apartment complexes and so on, but they um, they built on land that was just about equally contaminated as the places that people had left from. And uh, a couple years later, when they realized this, um, nobody wanted to admit the problem. It was just too huge now to to admit that they they built all these these new villages uh, and had to move people again. So for years, people were, were stuck living there, uh, really. So um, this is outside the 30-kilometer exclusion zone, but uh, close to it uh, in Belarus and Ukraine and Russia. Yeah, and those people just had a terrible fight. As always in, in the wake of any major disaster, because, of course, uh, it's almost impossible for an institution like the government to admit that it's been wrong because the, the idea of compensating people for something like that is just so nightmarish that, that hardly any uh, government would ever want to do that. And, uh, and people die for, for things like that. So it's, it's absolutely I mean, heart-wrenching for the people involved, obviously, and infuriating for the people who weren't directly affected but still understand what's at stake at times like this. So um, it, it does raise to my mind the question of what, uh, what the general public reaction to Chernobyl was and, and why it sort of, why it did not coalesce into, into a more, or galvanize into more of a, a straightforward uh, uh, movement to eliminate nuclear energy. I'm sure there must have been that sentiment in the air in the late 1980s. I was just a schoolboy at the time. I, I wasn't really aware of what was happening. But, uh, but uh, what's your sense on, on how the, uh, the, the movement to, to end nuclear power dissipated in, after you know, a few years after the Chernobyl crisis ended? Um, well, I think uh, one reason that happened was because um, the Soviets 
they had this system in place where every bureaucrat and um, every scientist who was working on the problem had had gone along with the official line and downplayed it. And so international experts who came to investigate uh, were, hit a wall. They hit their first line of contact was these people in the Soviet Union who were downplaying it and um, and doing all the research, which you know, just confirmed their their judgment of it. Uh, so that became the official line inside and outside uh, the Soviet Union. Um, so still today, you'll you'll read people saying uh, that everybody got potassium iodide, and they didn't, or um, that only uh, only a few thousand extra deaths occurred because of it. And all of this is just a gross uh, exaggeration of, uh, or I should say, under exaggeration, yeah, exaggeration exactly. of. Uh, mm-hmm of uh, what the true extent of the damage was. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, yeah. I think we can see the parallels between Chernobyl and Fukushima in that respect as well. Uh, mm-hmm. What about the issue of potassium iodide in, in Japan? And I understand there were some municipalities that were that were going to offer some in the immediate wake of the disaster but didn't, or do you know any of the details about that? Um, yeah, I heard one report that said um, at one point there was an order to get it ready, and all those villages and towns in the area... Uh, got it ready, and uh, then they received an order to hold back and not give it up. And there was only one town where the, the mayor ignored that order and gave it to people, so almost no one got it. Surprise, surprise. All right, well, on that somber note, we'll leave it there. We'll be back in just a few minutes to wrap things up here with Dennis Riches of Nuclear Free by 2045. Once again, the notes for today's episode will contain links to his blog and all of the articles that we're talking about tonight. That's at corbettreport.com slash radio. Welcome back to the closing minutes of Corbett Report Radio. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. We're talking to Dennis Riches of Nuclear Free by 2045, a very interesting and informative source of information about nuclear energy in, in general and the Fukushima crisis in particular. And we're discussing some of the, uh, the things that many people have never heard about, including the largest nuclear accident on U.S. soil, the Santa Susana Field Laboratory meltdown that occurred back in 1959. And unfortunately, so few people have ever even heard of. So, again, lots of very interesting and valuable information at nf2045.blogspot.com. But, Dennis, just in the closing minutes here, it strikes me that information really is the key to this, and uh, people perish for lack of knowledge. People can also panic and, and, and react poorly for lack of knowledge. And I'm concerned at FukushimaUpdate.com not only with, with pushing a certain agenda, but but with reporting things as, as they really are and trying to... Uh, not re- report on hype or panic or things that are exaggerated. So, for example, I got uh, some flack from some people for publishing recently a Forbes.com uh, article that was lambasting that uh, that study that came out recently saying there had been 14,000 excess deaths in the 14 weeks following through Fukushima. Uh, after reading that article, I, I thought there were some deep fundamental methodological problems with that study, and uh, I thought that article did a good job of exposing it, but people said, how dare you? stick up for the nuclear in- industry like that. So so I'm concerned about uh, about information and and basically what kind of information people are willing to or unwilling to to hear and why they're, you know, unwilling to take a look at such things as a, you know, a study that that has real fundamental methodological problems but unwilling to look at those problems. Uh, I think it's interesting in that respect, but I think one of the important things to keep in mind is why uh, what 
information sources we can rely on or, or what we can at least take a look at for, for our daily news on something like Fukushima. So I have my own websites that I tend to go to to keep up to date with what's happening there. But how about yourself? What, where, where do you go to keep informed about what's happening at Fukushima? Uh, yeah, the ones you mentioned before, NA News and uh, XSKF, I go to that one a lot. They're very good. Um, I think in the, in the early days they were publishing a lot of things that were just rumors and uh, unconfirmed things, but they're getting better. Um, but, yeah, you've got to be careful um, to just uh, look for evidence and, uh, and uh, just wait for, for more confirming stories to come out. Um, well, exactly right. I mean, it's important to understand or to know about that. I don't, I don't blame sites for reporting that, but I think to jump to conclusions because a certain one person has gotten sick or one person reports, you know, something that, that happened on site or whatever. I mean, I think we do need something more, but, but then again, we're caught in a rock and a hard place because then what do we end up waiting for? Official confirmation from TEPCO about something? Or, I mean, yeah. it, it, it seems, that that could be a losing uh, proposition as well. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned, uh, you know, the information is essential, but um, you know, what I was reading in this book about Chernobyl uh, made me think, you know, the next step is action. Um, something she said which really uh, uh, sort of inspired me was that she said nothing in, uh, in the Soviet Union and, and the republics after that started to change until workers uh, spoke up in solidarity with the victims. And that is people, you know, who were not directly affected, but uh, workers uh, got caught up in the issue, and they, they went on general strikes uh, in support of victims of Chernobyl. And, you know, I'm just asking myself, you know, is that ever going to happen in Japan, where mm-hmm. you see a widespread workers' strike you know, in support of that minority up in Fukushima that's suffering from uh, all this? Well, it's it's a sad indictment, I think, of the our society, our civilization in general, that that such a proposition is is almost unthinkable, whether in in Japan or in the United States or in Canada or so many other countries. The idea of general yeah. strikes is a way of uh, drawing attention, but uh, but it is it, it that certainly is a weapon that we have in our arsenal to try to affect change on a mass level. So I'm glad you raised that point. But uh, we're running out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. Dennis Rich's Nuclear Free by 2045. I uh, thank you once again for taking the time to talk with us tonight. Oh, thank you, James. Nice to talk to you. All right. Well, thank you to all of you out there for listening. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you again tomorrow night. And then, of course, Thursday night, we're going to have James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com. So I'll talk to you then.